to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. My name is Rithika Kampella, and I'm a PGY2 here at Yukon, and I will be your host for today's episode. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Internal Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. That said, we're back with the episode three of our cardiology mini-series, where we dive into some of the most clinically relevant conundrums you'll face and how to navigate them. Just as in the last episode, I'm joined by Dr. Erica Faircloth, a former chief of the program and a current second-year cardiology fellow at Hartford Hospital. Lower extremity edema, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, and elevated JVD all scream CHF because it's one of the most bread-and-butter conditions we see as interns. That said, the nuances of its etiology, limits of diuresis, and considerations of GDMT are all tools we should be ready to use to manage these patients effectively. So today, we'll be discussing the general approach to CHF management in patient. Hi everyone, thank you so much for having me. This is a super important topic, and you're completely right. Heart failure prevalence in the U.S. is about 2.4%, and recent projections estimate that the prevalence will actually increase by 46% by 2030. So although we are definitely better at managing heart failure patients, approximately 50% of patients with heart failure will die within five years. So it's really something that, as internists, we should feel comfortable managing. Brilliant. So with that said, I guess it would be good for us to get a better understanding of the physiology of heart failure and how that'll impact our triaging. I think we all know of like the four-quadrant clinical constellation chart. And so that plus the classification and criteria. And then, you know, what would usually be used for our garden variety CHF exacerbation versus cardiogenic shock? I guess the question I'm trying to ask here is when do we involve our fabulous advanced heart failure team? And then finally, pretty bread and butter for heart failure, HEF-PEF versus HEF-REF. So in a broad sense, heart failure is a syndrome that results in impairment of the heart to fill or eject blood, baseline. So one way to classify heart failure is by ejection fraction. So heart failure with reduced ejection fraction are those with an EF of less than 40%. Mid-range or borderline EF is between 41 49%. And HEF-PEF, or heart failure preserved ejection fraction, are those with EFs that are better than that. You can also classify patients with heart failure with improved or recovered EF. So recovered EF means a prior EF of less than or equal to 40% with a greater than or equal to 10% increase. And the second measurement has to be at least 40%. And then HEF-PEF is a super interesting diagnosis. That could be its own five-hour lecture. So today I think we're going to focus on HEF-REF patients because I could talk forever about HEF-PEF. So stages A through D are set in stone. So that is, you never get to downgrade once you've been identified on that scale. Stage A heart failure are patients, those who are at risk for heart failure, but without structural disease or symptoms. So that's your patients with CAD, diabetes, hypertension, those who are getting cardiotoxins or have a familial history of cardiomyopathy. Stage B are those who have structural heart disease, but don't have symptoms of heart failure. That's your patients with prior MIs, LV dysfunction, or asymptomatic valvular disease. Now, C and D are the patients we usually recognize as those heart failure patients. C is when they have structural heart disease with prior or current symptoms of heart failure. And stage D are those with refractory heart failure requiring specialized interventions. And that is, like, despite maximal medical therapy, they're currently hospitalized or those who can't really be safely discharged without special interventions. New York Heart Association heart failure classification, unlike the stages, is something that can change with time depending on the patient's clinical status. So just keep that in mind. So class one symptoms mean no limitation in physical activities. 
Class 2 patients have just slight limitations in physical activity. That's like normal everyday activity. The patient may feel a little bit short of breath, have palpitations, fatigue. Class 3 patients have marked limitations on physical activity, so minimal movement causes symptoms. And then class 4, you can guess, symptoms at rest. And then please don't forget right heart failure. They're always forgotten. And those are some of the most difficult patients to manage. So sometimes people will just see a normal EF and just say, you know, they don't have heart failure, but the RV is not working. So make sure you remember that. And then looking at a patient, you can also get an idea of their status. So you can always do a good history, do a physical. You know about the two-by-two table, which you just explained, identifying patients by their perceived perfusion at rest. So whether they're cold or warm and their congestion at rest, whether they're wet or dry. And this can kind of help sort in your mind where the patient stands and where they should be triaged in the hospital. If they're cold, call cardiology and get a lactic acid Look for poor perfusion, so poor mental status, kidney function, urine output, belly pain, liver dysfunction. And then that being said, an overall clinical impression of perfusion actually has a really low sensitivity in detecting low cardiac index. So just remember, our assessments really aren't perfect. Brilliant. So I guess now that we kind of have a better sense of how to identify patients in heart failure, not only that, but their severity as well, it's important for us to understand what the workup looks like ahead of them. So if we could just touch base on echoes and beyond. So when do we involve MRIs? How do we interpret the LGEs? And then special considerations when discussing patients who develop hyperacute heart failure, how to interpret the ProBNP, and when we need further investigation with a right and left heart cath. In someone you suspect heart failure, an echocardiogram is always the first step, along with a ProBNP or a BNP. An echo will give you information on the ejection fraction, if there's any focal wall motion abnormalities, structural issues like valvular dysfunction, wall size and thickness, which is important, and dilatation. Diastolic dysfunction is also really important. So if the patient, they can have restrictive physiology on mitral inflow velocity patterns, they have actually a seven-fold increase in mortality compared to those who do not. So the diastolic dysfunction is important. Now, low or normal levels of BNP or end-title pro-BNP have a high negative predictive value for excluding heart failure and should be measured. But it's really important to interpret the value in the context of the data. So levels can vary a lot between patients with the same level of heart failure. So their levels might not correlate necessarily if you compare each other. So older age, female sex, acute and chronic kidney disease, ACS, PE, AFib, myocarditis, anemia, OSA, sepsis, they'll all increase your levels of BNP and pro-BNP. ARNIs, so the, that's the intresto, will actually increase BNP but not pro-BNP. So if, if your hospital uses BNP, you have to worry about that or keep that in mind when you're analyzing. Being overweight, obesity, HEFPEF, ARBs, beta blockers, spironolactones, patients who have VADs, and CRTs actually can lower BNP. So it's hard to interpret. You can only really interpret your patient their own clinical course. Pre-discharge BNP and NT pro-BNP are definitely important because they are independent predictors of subsequent events. So there's really no role in trending the lab value while they're here in the hospital, but you can use that at the end of their care to kind of get an idea of what their baseline is. They used, they did a trial called the Guide It trial to try to use ProBNP to guide their diuresis and really found it no more effective than usual care. So you don't need to trend. So now with really interesting stuff, so the new onset heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, you really want to find out why the person has the heart failure. 
About two-thirds of patients have ischemic cardiomyopathy, so evaluation of the coronaries is essential, either by non-invasive techniques like stress testing or invasive techniques like coronary angiography. Non-ischemic cardiomyopathy has many causes and sometimes truly is idiopathic, but all the causes really should be looked at before you decide to call them idiopathic. And that's because there's a lot of therapies that may differ and treating the underlying condition is usually crucial to overall taking care of the patient. So evaluation by history, lab work, and further imaging can be done. Primary hypertension, valvulopathy, tachyarrhythmias, right ventricular pacing, or frequent PVCs can all lead to cardiomyopathy. Toxic causes, so radiation, cocaine, alcohol, chemotherapies, especially trastuzumab, 5-FU, anthracyclines, those all can lead to cardiomyopathy. Inflammatory causes, so infectious like HIV, viral myocarditis, Chagas disease, there's autoimmune, so eosinophilic myocarditis, RA, SLE, giant cell. Then metabolic causes, thiamine, selenium deficiencies, thyroid dysfunction, pheochromocytoma. And then, of course, you have to worry about things like peripartium cardiomyopathy and stress-induced or takotsubo. Infiltrative diseases, so amyloid, sarcoid, hemochromatosis are all possible. Genetic causes, so familial dilated cardiomyopathy, LV non-compaction, muscular dystrophic, arrhythmogenic, RV dysplasia, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, just to name a few. So it's now estimated that about 20 to 50% of the dilated cardiomyopathies that were previously called idiopathic are actually genetic in nature. So there's over 30 genes at this point associated. So if a genetic component is suspected, so you tried, looked at all the other things, and that's kind of where you're headed Really, cardiology should be involved, and they need to do a full family history, at least three generations, and then really expert senders trained in cardiovascular genetic medicine should be managing the patients because there's a lot of impact of testing. And then they get testing if they are the right patient. Now, patients presenting with heart failure, there's a class one recommendation for obtaining a UA, electrolytes, magnesium, calcium, CBC, LFTs, and TSH. And then further testing really depends on what you're suspecting. And then the presence and magnitude of hyponatremia in heart failure is linked to the illness severity and worse prognosis, so that's also important to just pay attention to. And renal dysfunction is also associated with incremental increases in mortality. And although we're not talking about HFPEF today, I want you to know that up to 15% of patients with HFPEF have cardiac amyloid, and that's related to the trans uh, 3 in which can be specifically excluded. So if your patient has low QRS voltage, postural hypotension, bilateral carpal tunnel, uh, biceps, tendon rupture, I usually ask these questions in my review systems, and you should too, just so that you can send patients if you need to. Now, cardiac MRI is a growing field. It can give us a lot of information about bivy function, valvular function, tissue characterization, and perfusion. And you look at different patterns of late gadolinium enhancement, which can give us ideas of what the etiology of the cardiomyopathy is. Again, this could be a talk on its own, so we're not going to get into the patterns. But if your primary workup above is not identifying exactly what it's causing, then at that point you can consider getting an MRI. All right. So at this point, we know how to identify patients in heart failure. We kind of have a better sense of how to work them up. Now, the big question is, how do we manage them? The name of the game, I guess, is GDMT. And then special considerations for when patients require pacers, you know, indications for secondary prevention. And honestly, what is a cardiomass? So getting patients on appropriate goal-directed therapy is key. So first, we have ACE inhibitors or ARBs. There's been so many studies proving the benefit of reducing mortality in heart failure hospitalizations like the consensus trial, the SOLVED treatment trial, SOLVED prevention study. 
ACE inhibitors have been shown to reduce the rate of progression of LV remodeling. The ATLAS trial compared the low-dose lisinopril with high-dose lisinopril in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and really didn't show any difference in primary outcome of all-cause mortality, but it wasn't powered for secondary outcomes. It did show some promise with higher dose in all-cause mortality and hospitalizations for heart failure, so take that as you will. If the patient has a cough, you can actually switch to an ARB. ARBs have been shown beneficial in the VAL-HEFT study and the CHARM alternative study, and if they can't tolerate this because of hypotension, renal insufficiency, hyperkalemia, you can actually switch to hydralazine plus isosorbide dinitrate. And further studies have found preferential benefit for this combination, especially in African-Americans, which is actually thought to be due to nitric oxide deficiency in African-Americans. The A-HEFT trial enrolled African-American patients with HEFREF, class 3 to 4, who were receiving standard therapy, including an ACE or beta blocker and MRA. And the study was actually stopped early because the benefits noted with addition of hydralazine isosorbide dinitrate in these patients, including at 43% reduction in overall mortality. And because of this, the 2013 guidelines recommended hydralazine isosorbide dinitrate to improve outcomes in African-Americans with moderate to severe heart failure symptoms, reduced EF, or LV dilation if already on optimal ACE and ARBs, a beta blocker, and diuretics. So sacupitril valsartan, we're going to call this entresto just for the ease. <laughs> it's a class of drugs called an ARNI, which combines an angiotensin II inhibitor and an inhibitor of neprilysin, which is involved in degrading vasoactive peptides like natriuretic peptides, bradykinin, and adrenomedulin. And this overall can decrease sympathetic and RAS activation in heart failure, and it promotes naturesis. It also decreases diuresis, wall stress, and prevents LV remodeling. The most notable study for this drug was called the Paradigm Heart Failure Study. And in this study, they used this medication, and it reduced the composite endpoint of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization by 20% versus enalapril. It also improved quality of life, all-cause mortality, and death due to worsening heart failure. Now, that being said, the study is not perfect, and I recommend you read the method section of this study. That's my own personal little caveat there. But anyway, based on this, the 2017 focus update gave Arnie or ARB or ACE a class 1 indication in conjunction with beta blockers and MRAs with stage C heart failure with reduced ejection fraction regardless of symptoms. And of note, if you plan to switch to an Arnie because the patient's on an ACE inhibitor, there needs to be at least a 36-hour gap in between so they don't have angioedema. So beta blockers are another proven cornerstone of therapy, and they are the things that you need to know. <laughs> so they help reduce heart rate, beta receptor upregulation, alter myocardial metabolism, calcium transport, and have impacts on cellular pathways. Beta blockers reduce and even reverse the progression of LV remodeling, and it is dose-related. And there are three proven beta blockers in heart failure. You need to know this for general medicine. So carvedilol, bisoprolol, and metoprolol succinate. The MERIT-HF trial looking at metoprolol succinate, the CIBIS-2 trial looking at bisoprolol, both showed benefit in patients with class 2 to 3 heart failure. The Copernicus trial looked at carvedilol in class 4 patients, and uh, Capricorn trial looked at carvedilol in patients with asymptomatic reductions in EF following MI, all showing benefit. And which you choose is really patient-dependent, so carvedilol has more alpha action, therefore it's more helpful in the patients that have concomitant hypertension. It's also a little bit less insulin resistance associated with it, Metoprolol succinate's nice because it doesn't touch the blood pressure as much, which is helpful for the patients that blood pressure is more of an issue with, like the low side. 
It's also a once-a-day medication, which can be important for compliance with your patients. And then COPD, if they, they often can still tolerate the beta blockers, which I mentioned kind of before in a different podcast, but you can preferentially choose ones with beta-1 selective agents and monitor symptoms closely. Beta blockers should be started at a really low dose and up-titrated once every two weeks. I think we titrate up fast often and maybe a little bit too fast. Uh, the full effect of beta blockers actually takes some time, so be careful with that. And the next important medication is mineral corticoid inhibitors or MRAs. And because the circulating levels of aldosterone are very increased in your patients with heart failure, this can lead to promotion of sodium retention, potassium and magnesium wasting, myocardial and vascular fibrosis, and activation of sympathetic nervous system. So it's really become an important target of heart failure therapy. The key trial is the Epiphysis trial, which looked at MRI aplerinone and found a 15% reduction in mortality and a 13% reduction in combined endpoint cardiovascular death or hospitalization. And then they had the Emphasis Heart Failure trial that further supported this. Therefore, MRAs are now recommended for patients with symptomatic heart failure with EFs less than 35% or patients with post-MI who have an EF of less than or equal to 40% or who have diabetes. So most of their patients. And then a new pillar of heart failure management has risen in the recent years with the SGLT2 inhibitors. Their benefits really thought to be multifactorial, including osmotic diuresis, lowering arterial pressures and stiffness, a shift in myocardial substrate metabolism from glucose to ketones, and direct inhibition of the myocardial sodium hydrogen exchanger, reduction in LV mass and remodeling, improvement in endothelial dysfunction, and stimulating glucagon secretion. The first study that looked at this in diabetics was the MPEG outcome study, the CANVAS study, and the DECLARE-TIMI 58 study. And a meta-analysis of these three trials showed that SGLT2 inhibitors reduced the risk of heart failure hospitalizations by 31%. And then further studies looked at patients in heart failure with the absence of diabetes in the DAPA-HF trial and the EMPEROR-REDUCE trial, and both were supportive of this for cardiovascular benefit in those without diabetes. And then, of course, we have our diuretics, which is the cornerstone of fluid management. Loop diuretics are the most important, which includes furosemide, uh, butanamide, and torsamide. Torsamide has the most consistent bioavailability with oral dosing, so that's sometimes very helpful to know. And diuretic resistance can occur if you aren't using an adequate diuretic dose, poor absorption, impaired urinary excretion, medications like NSAIDs, or excessive sodium intake. So it's really important to talk to your patients. And I'm not going to belabor this too much, but devices are important in heart failure. ICD therapy is recommended for primary prevention for sudden cardiac death in both non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy or ischemic cardiac disease at least 40 days out from post-MI with an EF of 35% or less and NYHA class 2 or 3 symptoms on chronic GDMT who have symptoms and an EF of less than 30% have a class 1 recommendation. Cardiac resynchronization therapy, or CRT, is what people usually use, is indicated when patients have an EF of 35% or less in sinus rhythm with a left bundle with a QRS at least 150 milliseconds or greater and have NYHA class 2 to 4 symptoms on goal-directed therapy. All right, brilliant. So, I mean, you know, the devices are not things that we see very often, but it's good to know when they're indicated. And obviously, GDMT is something that we, we talk about pretty frequently on rounds and hear cardiology talk about. So it's good to have an understanding of that as well. I guess my next question, um, and this leads back to what we discussed in other podcasts, but also today, what are the caveats to managing um, CHF patients? And more specifically, when do you want to avoid calcium channel blockers and beta blockers? 
Yeah, so medications to avoid in heart failure with reduced injection fraction include NSAIDs because they cause sodium retention, vasoconstriction, hurt the kidneys, and increase blood pressure. So don't give them those. Some diabetic medication, the glitazones, also increase sodium reabsorption in the kidneys and have been associated with heart failure. So watch out for those. Non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, so verapamil, diltiazem, they should be avoided because they have negative inotropic effects. And there are many more, but these are the ones you definitely should know in your everyday practice. All right. And with that, I expect everybody listening to be certified in advanced heart failure. No, I'm just kidding. But once again, thank you so much for your time, Erica. CHF is, you know, it seems like a pretty garden variety admission diagnosis, but there are a lot of caveats to its treatments, which can keep patients out of the hospital and safe from sudden cardiac death. Thank you for walking us through them. And once again, that's all we have for you guys today. Stay curious and until next time.